Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make you your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the ones who curse curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And he said, to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. He said, O Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it? So he said to him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. Then he brought all of these to him and cut them in two and laid each half opposite uh, of each other. But he did not cut the birds. The birds of prey came down upon the carcasses, and Abram drove them away. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed for a hundred years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation, they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. It came about when the sun had set that it was very dark. And behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. So he then handed him over to them to be crucified. They took Jesus, therefore, and he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the Place of Skulls, which is called in Hebrew, Golgotha. There they crucified him. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts, a part to every soldier and also the tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, to decide whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Scripture this morning was shared by some of our youth group members, and I hope you were listening to that scripture that was shared, because uh, if you were, you may have thought, what do those two passages from Genesis and John have to do with each other? And you may have asked yourself, what does this have to do with Christmas? I thought we were in the Christmas season. And if the theme is, see what love has done, what's that got to do with this? And I would say everything. And everything to do with each of you. Wherever you're at, spiritually, or in a relationship with God, or not. Because this scripture from Genesis and John relates to what God has done, what his nature is, and who he is. It's all about see what love has done. This morning in this message, I want us to see the big picture. I want us to see the message of the Bible. Because the message of the Bible is see what love has done. John the Apostle said that God is love. That's his very nature. And so the whole story of the Bible, the story of history is to see what love has done, to see what God has done to redeem a wayward people. There's uh, 
some promises that were inherent in his words to Abram in Genesis. And we're going to consider the promise keeper himself and what those promises mean to us. There's an outline in your bulletin, two principles. Here's the first. Love promises to pursue peace no matter the offense. Love promises to pursue peace no matter the offense. When you open the Bible, book of Genesis, which means beginnings, you have the creation account. You have God creating then the crown of his creation, Adam and Eve, placing them in a paradise, and they have everything. They've got a relationship with him. They've got everything. There were some commands, don't eat of that particular tree, and along comes the tempter. And he casts doubt upon the word of God, and they buy into it, and they rebel against God in their disobedience. And in doing so, they side with the enemy, and they become the enemy of God. So how does God respond? Well, he condemns the devil, who had taken on the form of a serpent, and he tells this couple there will be consequences. In fact, they were escorted out of the garden. But right there in Genesis 3, verse 15, he gives them a promise that through this woman's descendants there would come one who would crush the head of the serpent, Satan himself. There's a promise of redemption built right in to the context of their rebellion. Why did God do that? Because love pursues peace no matter the offense, no matter the crime, no matter how egregious it is, love, God, pursues peace. Well, he picks it up in Genesis chapter 12 when he calls Abram. And he tells him he wants him to go to a land he's never seen. And uh, Abram believes God and follows him. And then God makes a promise to him. He says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. And through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Three chapters later in Genesis 15, God speaks again to Abram. And he adds land to the promise. And he tells him, I'm going to give you this land. And your descendants will inherit it. Although they will be out of the land for a period of 400 years and enslaved. But they will come back and one day they will inherit this land. And Abram says to God, how will I know? that this will be true. And then God does something which we look at and read through and think, this is bizarre. He takes these animals, a calf, a goat, a sheep, and splits them in two. I mean, their carcasses are divided. And a couple of uh, birds, a dove and a pigeon, and lays them there. And then a deep sleep comes over Abram. And you pick it up in verse 17 of chapter 15, it says, It came about when the sun had set that it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. We understand what's happening here when we understand the meaning of covenant. In the Hebrew language, you cut a covenant. It literally meant to cut a covenant. And there was an ancient ritual where they understood there had to be sacrifice when two parties came together and made a covenant agreement. And so they would literally cut an animal in two, lay its carcass in two opposite each other, and walk between those pieces. And when they did that, 
these two parties were saying two things. They were saying, if I ever default on this covenant, if I ever break this covenant, may this happen to me. Serious stuff, right? And they were also saying, and if you ever need me for anything, I'm there for you, even to my own death. And so that, in essence, what, was, what happened here, and even though it seems strange and gross and bloody to us, that was that ancient ritual of making a covenant. In fact, in the book of Jeremiah, and I won't take the time to go there, but the reference is in your outline, Jeremiah 34. God talks about the covenant that he'd made with Israel. That would have been the Mosaic covenant with Moses on top of Mount Sinai, the law. And he told him, you broke the covenant. And he said, you officials in Jerusalem and Judea, and, and all you people, you passed between the parts of the calf, but you've broken the covenant. Now, whether they literally passed through that or God is making reference to the covenant way back at the time of Abram, he's saying, we made a covenant, you've broken it. And because of that, you'll go into captivity. I mean, we have rituals that have come down to our day that are kind of strange too. When uh, I think I was seven years old, I went to 4-H camp with uh, my buddy Dave, and maybe we'd been watching too many Cowboys and Indian movies, but uh, we took our pocket knives and we cut our hands and put them together, and we were blood brothers, you know. I mean, from then on, we, we were committed to each other. That's the hint of the essence of what was in mind here. But back to this covenant that uh, God made with Abram. A couple things. It said when Abram was there before he went to sleep, birds of prey came down on it. What were those? Well, scholars say it could have been a couple things. It could have been that Satan would want to put doubts into Abram's mind about God's faithfulness, and he had to be vigilant and stand against the enemy. And by the way, that happens to us too. God made a covenant with us at the cross, we're told, and it was put into effect at the death of Christ, which we'll get to, but he puts doubts into our mind as to whether we really are in relationship with God because of Christ and his sacrifice. And we need to be vigilant and stand against the enemy and resist the devil's uh, accusations to us. Another thing that could have referenced those birds of prey is the enemies that would come against Israel later on and try to steal that land from them and how they needed to stand firm for what God had given to them. And that's happening to this day. The amazing thing about this covenant, it was a one-way covenant. Usually it was between two parties. But it said, no, Abram was asleep when a smoking oven and a flaming torch passed there. The smoking oven was symbolic of the suffering that Abram's descendants would go through. Not only into Egypt, into slavery, but down through the ages. And the flaming torch was a symbol of God himself. He passed between those carcass pieces. And what he was saying to Abram is, I'm doing this. I'm making the covenant, and it's unconditional. You're not passing between the pieces, and so I'm going to fulfill this covenant. That was a promise that God made to Abram, to his descendants. And remember, not just his physical descendants, but the New Testament says, all who put their faith in Christ are children of Abraham, which his name was changed to. So 
that covenant that God made with Abram would apply to all who would, by faith, become his offspring. Why did God do that? Because love pursues peace, no matter the offense. That would be true with Abram, that would be true with Israel, that would be true with you and me. No matter how egregious our crimes or offenses against God, God pursues peace because God is love, and love pursues that kind of peace. Secondly, love keeps its promises no matter the cost. David, who wrote half of the Psalms, he was the shepherd boy in Israel. He became the shepherd king of Israel. And he wrote a psalm in Psalm 15 that I think has relevance here. He asks the question, beginning the psalm, Lord, who may dwell in your sanctuary? Who may live on your holy hill? What sanctuary? What, what holy hill is he talking about? He's talking about the tabernacle as it was in the wilderness and then on the holy hill of Zion in Jerusalem, which would then become the temple when it was built to replace that tent. And he, he referenced the presence of God there because, of course, the Ark of the Covenant was in that sanctuary. And, and what he's talking about here is, who can be close to you, Lord, in your presence? He's not talking about salvation. The Jewish people weren't saved because they did good things. He's talking about fellowship, closeness to God. They would be saved, by the way, same as we are, through the blood of Christ on that cross, even though those animal sacrifices foreshadowed it. That's how any would be saved. So who can stay close to God? Who can live in his presence? And then he says this, He whose walk is blameless and who does what is righteous, who speaks the truth from his heart and has no slander on his tongue, who does his neighbor no wrong and casts no slur on his fellow man, who despises a vile man but honors those who fear the Lord. And look at this, who keeps his oath even when it hurts. Wow. Now, can we say that we do all those things? Most of us can say, well, no. I've broken a lot of those things. Remember, this isn't about how to get saved. This is about staying close to Jesus. It's, and, and to the Lord, it's like Christ saves us, and we want to do these things. We fall short, but if you want to stay close to the Lord, these are some qualities that will be exhibited in our lives. But... One of them is a person who keeps his oath even when it hurts. Who, who does that? When I think of making promises and breaking them, I don't know why, but politicians come to mind. We've just been through an election campaign, and did you hear any promises from candidates locally or statewide or nationally? Of course we heard a, a, just a bundle of promises. Why do politicians make promises? To get elected, right? Some of them, and I say there are exceptions, some of them are patriots, whether they're local or national candidates who really love their community or their country, and they're doing their best to fulfill those promises because they believe in them. But too many politicians make promises simply to get elected, and then once they get in office, they'll keep them, if it's politically expedient to do so. <laughs> but they'll break them if it's not. And so those promises don't put a lot of stock in them unless you know the character of that politician, but they're just too easily broken. Same in business. It used to be 
people would make a business deal and they would just shake on it and that was it. Their word was their bond. Now you can have contracts and they don't mean anything either because then you can have a team of lawyers who are looking for loopholes so you can break your promise in that contract. Same way with marriage. Christian people used to understand marriage as a covenant between two people and the Lord. But then it became a contract to where, okay, if you do your part, I'll do my part, and if I don't agree with this, then I'm out of here. And then, in the mid-60s in our country, we moved to no-fault divorce. So it's like, your word really doesn't mean anything. And vows often are changed in contemporary ceremonies to reflect that. Words and promises have been greatly diminished in our culture. That's reflected in so many ways, and in literature is one. There was an historical novel written some years ago by Jennifer Donnelly, and uh, one of the characters says this in that novel. I know it is a bad thing to break a promise, but I think now it is a worse thing to let a promise break you. In other words, I'll keep this promise so long as it's good for me. Is that a promise? What kind of a promise is that? But that's where our culture has come to. Thankfully, there are exceptions, and we should aspire to be one of them. I ran into one of our teachers on the Lower Lanai on Friday morning and uh, asked her how her husband was. Now, this teacher's been with us for 35, 40 years, I would say. And her husband, many years ago now, was diagnosed with Parkinson's. And uh, she's gone to part-time. She just ministers to him whenever she's not here. She's on call, just loving and care. That's faithfulness. That is honoring a promise. And that inspires us. And that's what God had in mind when it, made, when it came to promises. Why? Because love keeps its promises. Because God keeps his promises. When that child was born to a virgin in Bethlehem, and we call it Christmas, what was that? That was God keeping his promise to fulfill the covenant. And that child grew and became a man and began his ministry and he began to teach and he began to work miracles and then opposition to his message grew until finally he was betrayed and he was sentenced to execution and he was crucified. And what was that? That was God keeping his promise fulfilling the covenant that he had made to Abram way back when. Because the cross was where God fulfilled what he had said to Abram. If you or your descendants ever need me, I'll be there for you. Well, we needed him, didn't we? Because we broke the covenant. So shouldn't we pay? Actually, we should. But God said, no, I'm the one passing through these parts. I will pay. I'll not only be there for what you need, I'll be the sacrifice. I'll let my body be torn apart on that cross so that you can be free and forgiven. That is an unbelievable act of grace that God has extended to those who believe. Abraham's descendants, both both physically and spiritually, who put their faith in Christ. 
As I looked at the gospel accounts this week, I found it interesting to just see how little is actually said about the suffering of Christ on the cross. You have a lot of events surrounding the cross, leading up to the cross, and then it says, and they crucified him between two thieves. And then there's a lot of events uh, surrounding that, the, the women and John who are standing there and the sayings that Jesus utters from the cross, but not a lot about his suffering. We get a hint of it, a hint of it when he says, I thirst. There's some physical suffering. There's some physical suffering going on there. Doctors have analyzed that and what took place there. And there are historical accounts and we know the horrific suffering that is involved in crucifixion. I mean, it was perfected by the Romans who got that from the Phoenicians. But it could last for hours. It could last for days. And the intense physical suffering, the spasms of the muscles and the lungs and you can't get breath and finally the heart explodes. And there's so much of that and yet not much mention of it in the gospel accounts. However, there is one expression of those seven that Jesus made from the cross that gives us a real understanding into the anguish of his soul on that cross. And it is not only recorded in the Gospels, but it also is recorded a thousand years earlier, prophetically, by David in Psalm 22. And this is what David said a thousand years before Christ in that opening verse. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you hear the anguish in that as he screamed that from the cross? He who had been with his father from all eternity now feels abandoned, forsaken. Why? He who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. God the Father withdrew from the Son, and he was in anguish. And you go through Psalm 22, and I really encourage you to do that, phrase by phrase, and see the psalmist's prophetic glimpse into the cross and the Savior's suffering there, and you'll get a better understanding of what Jesus was experiencing there. Let me just mention a few of the things that David said as he looked forward prophetically. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It is melted away within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. That's an old piece of pottery. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. That suffering of the Christ on the cross was God keeping his promise. 700 years before Christ came in the flesh, the prophet Isaiah also spoke of this covenant keeping of God as he looked prophetically into the future. Hear what he says in Isaiah 53. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Why? Because he kept the covenant. We broke the covenant, but he kept it, 
and made that commitment to Abram and fulfilled it at the cross. The Apostle Paul, when he looked back to the cross and he wrote to the churches in the New Testament, he referenced that same covenant. Let me share just a couple of things Paul said. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, in Jesus, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation, if you continue in your faith, established and firmed, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. The good news is that God keeps his promises, and it was fulfilled at the cross. We now have peace, having been reconciled to God through the blood of Christ, who paid that price. Many of you have found it. You know what it means to have peace with God, a relationship with him. This last January, a couple came to me for premarital counseling, and um, she said, no, I've been coming to this church for 15 years. And I said, I don't really know you. I, I, I don't understand. And she said, well, I guess I just come Christmas and Easter. And I said, okay. <laughs> and so uh, I determined in that counseling session, she was a believer, but I decided, I don't think Randall is here. And I just have a policy because I believe it's biblical. I won't marry an unbeliever to a believer, so they'd be unequally yoked. And so I'm sharing the gospel with Randall from different angles, and he's getting a little defensive about the whole thing. And, and uh, finally I said, look, uh, you've got to read this book. He was saying a lot of the right things, but something wasn't adding up. got to read this book, More Than a Carpenter. It's only 128 pages. And you guys got to start coming to church for four weeks and then come to up to bat and I'll think about marrying you guys. And uh, he emailed me the next morning, a paragraph about that long, and said, I finished the book. I started reading it last night. I finished it this morning. I believe. I understand what you were saying and I've accepted Christ as my Savior. And uh, man, he just went on and, and they did come to church. They got into the base path and it was amazing just to hear Randall uh, his heart being changed, and he and Patty both growing in the Lord. And, and I want you to hear just a part of his story via video here. Yeah, my name's Randall Kawano. I grew up in Honolulu. I went to public school, Rural Elementary, Kaunakoa, and Roosevelt High School, as well as the University of Hawaii. You know, my parents considered themselves Buddhists, so we went to Buddhist things, not, not so much because they attended regularly, but for funerals and things like that. So other than that, as a child, no, I did not go to any type of church other than for special events. I only recently became a Christian earlier this year. And I've always believed in God, but I have never read the Bible until this year. It's, it's hard to describe, but I, I will say, for example, that prior to asking Jesus into my life and forgiving my sins, I do things I would never have done before. Now I come to church regularly. I've attended a base path, I'm attending 
I'm participating in an Ohana group right now. I sing at service. All these things, if you had told me I'd be doing these things previously, I'd tell you there's no way I do all these things. So I used to come to church with my wife now and we'd come for Christmas Eve, Easter, the special days. And I would go just to accompany her. I used to tell my wife, well, let's go later so when the singing is done. But since I've become a Christian, I eagerly sing, not well, but I'm, I'm not ashamed of it. I, as I said, I do things I, I never have done before. So what I feel is if, if, it, if it is the Holy Spirit in me, because that's the only explanation I can give for, for the things I do today, been doing this testimony, I don't think I would have done it. I can't believe that I don't even hesitate and think about it. When Pastor Ron asked me, I just said, yes. And so I, I just feel, if anything, more at peace. I do feel the love of fellow Christians, especially at this church. I think this is a, a great church, great people, not, not just church people, but just great people. And that's part of the reason I continue to come here. Randall is not only not ashamed to sing, he's not ashamed of his Savior. Uh, when he would come to Base Path, Scott and Amy help us with Base Path, par partner with us in that. And he would come, and remember he would tell us that he would take people out to lunch, uh, fellow workers or maybe uh, friends that he'd known for years. And he was sharing with them how he'd come to know Jesus. And many of them would say, well, I'm a Christian. And he said, what? Why didn't you tell me? And I thought, yeah, great question. And now he actually buys uh, more than a carpenter by the case. And he's passing those out to people. So his life has been changed because God kept his promise. And uh, Randall understands that. So God pursues peace, no matter the offense. And God keeps his promises, no matter the cost. Because that's what love has done. And I want each of us this Christmas season to see what love has done. See what God has done in making a promise to us to redeem us way back then and fulfilling it at the cross that extends to every one of us now if we believe. So how do we respond? Well, if you're not yet a child of God, you need to see what love has done. You need to look right at the cross and believe that he took your punishment because he loves you and received Christ into your own life. You can do that even this morning, maybe even during the time of communion. Just breathe a prayer and invite Christ to come into your life and to forgive your sins. That's what you can do. For those of us that are followers of Christ, maybe we would confess that we don't really see God's love flowing through our lives, that we haven't been pursuing peace, no matter the offense. No, we're holding on to some things. There's that offense that we just can't get over. There's that person that we can't forgive. But wait a minute. God pursues peace no matter the offense. Love pursues peace no matter the offense. And so should we as children of God. And I want to challenge each of us. Make a commitment 
this season, I mean, the person may even be gone. You can still forgive that person in your heart. Or if they're here or present, you can reach out to that person. You can uh, make a phone call. You can forgive. You can ask forgiveness because that's what love does. And love keeps its promise. And so I'm going to ask you to make that promise to the Lord this morning, just even during our time of communion. Lewis Smead said this years ago. Yes, somewhere people still make and keep promises. They choose not to quit when the going gets rough because they promised once to see it through. They stick to lost causes. They hold on to a love grown cold. They stay with people who have become pains in the neck. They still dare to make promises and care enough to keep the promises they make. I want to say to you that if you have a ship, you will not desert. If you have people, you will not forsake. If you have causes, you will not abandon. Then you are like God. Let's pray. Lord, we are so grateful that you are the promise keeper and that that promise was kept when your son, our Savior, suffered in our place. Thank you, we pray in his name. Amen.